Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this, this is our fifth episode on Fossbrother Saga. Fifth. The Saga of the Sworn Brothers, Thorgeir Haberson and Thormod Bersesson. You know, if you told me when we were in grad school that uh, that we'd someday spend more than three months talking about Fossbrother Saga, I don't think I'd have <laughs> believed us. Well, I might have believed it, but I'd have been confused by the idea. Yeah, yeah, fair. <laughs> Uh, now that we're actually doing it, though, I, I think it makes a lot more sense. Uh, on the one hand, uh, you know, we're not really talking about it for three months. We're taking some fairly long breaks in there. But also, it's quite a story. There's plenty of action. There's plenty of what we might charitably call problematic heroes. And, well, there's a fair number of surprising developments. Mm-hmm. We've got to take our time. Well, and one surprising development is that we now have only one actual sworn brother to talk about. Yes. Spoiler alert, if you didn't listen to the last episode, we lost Thorgeir. We did indeed. And honestly, the real surprise isn't that we lost him. It's it's that he lasted as long as he did. Uh, <laughs> really, Thorgeir yeah. was something of a disaster as a person and a, a one-man wrecking crew as a protagonist. Yeah, It's kind of a tribute to his accomplishments as a warrior that it took as long as he did to uh, have someone finally kill him. <laughs> well... Since this episode will deal almost entirely with the aftermath of his death, we should probably take a minute to cover what happened. Last time on Saga Thing! The word went round the Westfjords of the reunion of the Sworn Brothers. After a decade of separation, the brothers enter into an uneasy truce, during which Thormod has to rescue Thorgir during an herb-gathering session gone embarrassingly awry. In the spring, Thormod hunkers down in Iceland, still recovering from injuries sustained during his courtship of a sorceress's daughter. Thorgir returns to Norway, where his king and comrade Olaf tries to convince him to stay. But the siren song of Iceland still plays on Thorgir's ear, and he sails home once more. Thorgeir's cousin Elugi, meanwhile, is in Iceland recruiting for a voyage. He turns up a motley crew of sailing men, including a quiet warrior named Gaut Slaterson, as a ball with a louder man named Helgi Seal's testicle. Elugi agrees to add Thorgeir to the roster for a return trip to Norway the following spring. But Thorgeir's plans are disrupted when Gaut Slaterson picks a bone with him over a killing Thorgeir committed years before. Thorgeir kills Gaut as well, an act which leaves him short-handed as he waits for Elugi's arrival at the shore. Breaking news, Bolton! Numerous sources report the death of the outlaw Thorgeir Havison, the man who feared nothing. It seems that Thorarin the Overbearing, a relative of Gaut's, found Thorgeir lounging on the beach. With his friend, Thorgrim Troll, Thorin has taken bloody revenge, attacking Thorgeir with overwhelming numbers, and finally beheading him. Thorarin takes Thorgeir's severed head as a souvenir, but soon finds its grim expressions too frightening and buries it. But will Thorarin be able to bury his fell deed so easily? Not with Thormod looking for payback against Thorgeir's gillis. Our tale turns now to Thormod's deadly quest for revenge in Brother Saga, chapters 18 to 23. Whew. Yeah, the, that's a lot. Uh, so the end of the partnership of the Sworn Brothers means that our narrative shifts gears one more time. Right? We, mm-hmm. uh, we had a saga that veered between an outlaw narrative and a warrior-poet love story, and now we're entering into a classic tale of revenge. Yeah, yeah. And while Thormod may have felt ambivalent about Thorgeir as a lifelong companion, they were still close friends. His feelings aren't so ambiguous when it comes to people chopping off his Sworn Brother's head and keeping it as a souvenir. 
their friendship is this really complicated thing. Uh, as, as we said, they're from two different story traditions, and they're very different personalities on top of that. But they're invested in each other, right? not just as companions, but as publicly acknowledged blood brothers. Right. Uh, they did the full ritual of passing under an earth arch to declare their connection to each other. Right. Yeah, it's, it's that whole idea of a public exhibition of your connection to another person. Right. It's it's like a commitment ritual. A kind of marriage, if you will. Exactly, actually. Uh, their friendship, strong male friendship in general in the sagas, really, has some of the elements of a marriage. Uh, think of mm-hmm. Gunnar and Jarl, or the, the Inga Mundersons in Vatnsdala saga. Right. It's an yeah. expression of a kind of love, but it also has the ritual and social sanction elements of a marriage union. It's it's something that isn't easily dismissed or dissolved. Yeah, it's it's a bond, um, not quite as strong as the uh, bond between Achilles and Patroclus, but well, but a bond nonetheless. We can only hope to be Achilles and Patroclus. That's right. Uh, but the literature is going to amplify all of that. It's going to center that relationship, mm-hmm. and and that's going to come at the expense of romantic love in an actual marriage, which we've seen yeah. uh, play out in this saga. Right. I mean, the literature is generally androcentric. Right. It's focused on the relationships mm-hmm. and the reputations of men of consequence. And in that register, male homosocial bonds are treated as the highest expression of friendship. So for Thorgeir and Thormod, their bond is part of their broader reputation and public honor, which means that the loss of Thorgeir places multiple demands on Thormod now. He's got a need to avenge a bonded brother, mm-hmm. but also the performance of manly honor. Sure. Uh, we can also think about this as an opportunity for advancement for Thormod. He, he wouldn't, I'm not suggesting, he wouldn't have chosen to lose Thorgir on purpose. I'm not saying that. But as the man who will take up the task of revenge, Thormod stands to win greater repute if he is seen to act decisively and well in support of a loved one's memory. Mm-hmm. Well, are we ready now to see how he does as a force of vengeance? Let's go. Part 18. Revenge is a dish best served eventually. So, we left off with Thorger's death. Actually, we left off with a ridiculously long digression on relative sizes of human hearts. But yes, yeah, yeah, in the story, yeah. <laughs> in the story, yeah. Yeah, but also with Thorger's death, uh, what we didn't do is deal with Thormod. I mean, apart from mm-hmm. the conclusion of his uh, drapa about Thorger's life. Ah, yes. I'm going to miss his lies in verse about Thorger's sailing prowess. <laughs> it's a loss, I admit. Uh, so... <laughs> In terms of how he deals with all this, uh, Thormod spends the spring in mourning, but by summer, he's decided on a course of action. Revenge! Something uh, like that? Not exactly. Not right away. Eventual revenge! <laughs> yeah. It's a, sort of a slow burn. Uh, it'll be worth it, though. His immediate plan is to sail for Norway and bring news of Thorger's death to King Olaf. He finds Skuff. Uh, a skipper from Greenland who does commercial work for King Olaf and gets a ride to Norway with him. Mm-hmm. And he's got some friends on board, as it turns out, because Eolf of Olafstal and his foster brother Thorger Boundless are along on the voyage as well. Oh, right. Yeah, these are the uh, the young troublemakers who we met briefly last time. Mm-hmm. They were raised together, and they're not bad kids, but they are rambunctious and careless with money, and an old woman at Eos Farm had predicted that their friendship would end in tragedy. So there's a good recap for you. Right. Well, so far, they're doing just fine. And good. frankly, they're still Definitely. waiting for their actual narrative moment. Right now, well, Thormud reaches the court of Olaf, and he's asked right away about his connections and family line. Thormod replies, I am an Icelander, Thormod, son of Bersi. And Olaf says, Ah, 
Are you the man they call Colebrow's poet? The sworn brother of Thorgeir Haverson? Oh, well, yes, yes I am. Then you shall enjoy our favor for Thorgeir's sake. You are welcome here. You may know that I account myself deeply offended at the slaying of my follower, Thorgeir, and I would be grateful to have him avenged, in the most Christian fashion, right, of course, right, obviously. Right. As, as revenge often happens for Olaf. Uh, yeah, yes. no, this is obviously catnip to Thormod, right? I mean, he's essentially being given a wink and a nod to go on a revenge spree under the protection of Olaf. That's a big deal, yeah. Uh, but it's possible. I mean, that's kind of what he came here for, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's never really bothered to visit Olaf before or travel to Norway. Right. Uh, I, I, don't, I was thinking about this. I don't think he's ever left Iceland before. Uh, no. Yeah, now he clearly has an agenda here, but as an added bonus, he's now accepted into the ranks of Olaf's men. And this is the beginning of another beautiful friendship. It is. Uh, Olaf Perhaps a Thormund, more lucrative one. Well, I mean, you know, he certainly has more money than Thorgeir did. Uh, Olaf and Thormund are going to be connected from this point forward. Uh, not to spoil anything, but they're going to be buddies until their deaths. Which, John, that reminds me, mm-hmm. last time... In that last episode, we talked about Thorgeir and Thormod showing up in Gretis Saga. Yeah. And this friendship also has uh, a featured role in another text. Oh, yes. A couple of other texts, actually. Yes. I, I'm thinking of the friendship between uh, Thormod and, and Olaf. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one I have in mind is uh, Volsathauter. Uh, and we uh, did we got a message from Tony Balcom about it. Uh-huh. Uh, you might... Uh, you you might remember this one, Volsathatra. Yeah, uh, that's not one you forget. Uh, <laughs> this is this is the short story about the rural family who spend their evenings venerating and composing poetry to a pickled horse penis. I mean, you gotta make your own fun sometimes when sure. you're out there in rural Iceland. Absolutely. So, <laughs> in in that story, Olaf visits the family and convinces them to give up their horse wang worship in favor of Christianity. Well, a reasonable request. Right. I mean, he kind of makes his argument by feeding the phallus to the family dog, but it's the yes. same end result, I suppose. <laughs> it is. Well, the point is that Olaf isn't alone. He's got mm-hmm. two friends with him. Mm-hmm. One is Finn Arneson, and the other is Thormod Bersason, a.k.a. Kolbrunneskald, Kolbrun's uh-huh. poet, Kolbrow's poet, however you want to translate it or work it. <laughs> and the three of them are in disguise, and each of them is given the horse dangler and offered a chance to compose a praise poem to it. Uh-huh. Uh, Thormod's the second of the three to take the matter in hand, as it were. Uh, <laughs> his poem includes the immortal line, Never before have I seen a prick at attention passed along the bench. <laughs> and that's when he tosses the thing to Olaf. <laughs> uh, I gotta thank Tony for reminding us about this. I, yeah. I had made a note to myself to talk about this episode uh, when we got to this saga, and then somehow I forgot all about it. Uh, mm-hmm. So thank you, Tony, for giving us an excuse to talk about the literary wonder that is Volsatotter once more. Yes. Uh, and John, I don't know if you remember, but uh, we recorded that uh, back in the beginning of the pandemic. That's right. That's right. Uh, so I don't know if that's the beginning of 2020 somewhere in there. Uh, know, yeah, spring April, of 2020. We spent, we spent a month doing Thouter uh, one a week. Well, I'd like to tell our past selves that things are... are are so much no, they're not better, really. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, hey, I don't look, know. We, ha- we have a vaccine, Andy. It's going, it's going better than it was. Yeah, oh, sure it is. <laughs> sure, everything's great. <laughs> everything's great, Pastor. Everything's John, just Andy. fine now. Don't worry about it. Anyway, so back to the present. Uh, Thormod is now a member of Olaf's court, and he's not alone. 
Before the year's out, most of Thormod's friends and acquaintances, they've, uh, they've arrived in Norway. Mm-hmm. There's Elugi Arison, the brothers Kalf and Steinolf, and the foster brothers Eolf of Olofstal and Thorgar Boundless. They're all there, and they all join Olaf's court. Yeah, it's suddenly getting pretty Icelandic in Olaf's court. Mm-hmm. Only for a short time, though, because nearly all of these men choose to return to Iceland the following year. Right. I mean, there's a lot that happens in this section that ultimately isn't all that central to our story. I think we're going to have to yada yada a couple of things. Like we yada yada Thorgeir and Thormod right out of Gretsch's saga? Right. <laughs> Are we going to look back and regret this? I mean, <laughs> I probably. So. Um, let, well, let's just say this. Two important things happen, but mm-hmm. they don't happen here. They happen back in Iceland. Right. All right. Uh, let me explain the other stuff first. The the subplots with uh, Kalf and Stanoff and Eolf and Thorgeir Boundless get resolved if that's the word I'm looking for, uh, next year. Uh, Kalf and Steinolf sail back to Iceland, and they have a good voyage. Now, Kalf and Steinolf are the the two men who were part of Thorgeir's crew and got themselves captured as hostages. They were the ones yes. that um, were on the shore that day um, and right. got captured. Right. And as you just said a moment ago, Eolf and Thorgeir Boundless are the young scallywags who are prophesied to be one another's doom. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also sail back, but they have a terrible trip with high winds and bad cross currents, and tempers run short on the voyage. Eolf and Thorgeir nearly come to blows over a disagreement, but are separated by their men. But later that winter, they confront one another, and there's no one there to stop them. They run at each other, and both stab the other fatally. Yeah, and that's got to be a great I-told-you-so moment for the old woman who foretold that this would happen. <laughs> well, I mean, it would be, but she actually had died earlier the same winter. So not much then. Yeah, no, no. So... Kalf and Steinolf arrive on the scene, but the injuries are fatal. They can't do anything except sit with Eolf and Thorgir until both men die. Mm. Oh, and uh, Kalf and Steinolf uh, also see a vision of Thorgir Haverson at the same time. That's uh, Thorgir, the, the main character, right? Uh, he's riding with his dead sailors all covered in blood. Wait, that's it? Yeah. Just like a, oh, look, there's Thorgir still looking rather dead. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> it's nice that he's still Come getting on. out and about. Uh, yeah, yeah there, there appears to be no other significance to this vision. I, I, I said we could skip this part. Well, yeah, it's an odd moment, and it's seemingly a rather pointless digression. I mean, why are we hearing about Eolf and Thorgir Boundless again? They didn't contribute anything to the narrative when, we, when, when they were first introduced, yep. and now they're being introduced only to fulfill a prophecy that says that these two friends are going to kill each other. Mm-hmm. And, John, why does Thorgeir Haverson suddenly show up in a vision all covered in blood, weakening Kalf and Steinolf so they can't help Eolf uh, and right. Thorgeir resolve their problems? It's I, very strange. But I, I, it occurs to me that what we've got here is a lot of pairs of men. We've got brothers, sworn brothers, good friends. Right. Uh, and if we think about it, uh, one pair of brothers, Thormod and Thorgeir, parted ways before they could come to blows. Mm-hmm. Another pair, Eolf and Thorgeir Boundless, they argue over where to land a ship and end up killing each other over their hurt feelings. And then there's this final pair, Kalf and Steinolf, who support each other and don't seem to have any conflicts. But it all kind of goes nowhere. I mean, what is this? Some sort of meditation on the bonds between men and how they break? Possibly, although I don't even know what the significance of that would be. I don't know. Maybe there's something here. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean... You know, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's, uh, you know, anything definitive we can say about it, but. Yeah, exactly. The the problem is the roles of these minor characters aren't developed enough to help us come to any kind of solid interpretation here. So, 
Yeah. Uh, I guess speaking of pointless digressions. <laughs> sorry. I'm obviously still working on this idea, but uh, let, let's move on. Let's turn to stuff that we shouldn't have skipped. Because uh-huh. that same spring, Thorgir's cousin, Thorgil's Arison, okay. brings a suit against Thorar and the Overbearing and his crew for Thorgir's death. And they get compensation for Thorgir's death, which is actually quite an achievement, given that Thorgir was an outlaw at the time of his death. I'm not sure if the author forgot that yeah. or no, it's what's a, going it's on there. A, right. It's a little surprising that Thorgils would be willing to go the compensation route. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's not the way that you'd expect someone like Thorgir to be paid for. And mm-hmm. sure enough, not everyone is satisfied with a financial settlement. That same summer, Thorar and the Overbearing attends a gathering at Eyjafjord, and while he's there... He's killed under circumstances that are just never explained. One of those great well, mysteries. Uh, never explained in this saga, anyway. There's uh-huh. a there's an incomplete fauter about Thorarin that makes it pretty clear that King Olaf put out a hit on him. <laughs> well, there is precedent there, right? Thorgar was sent to Iceland once uh, to do the same thing, so we know that it happens. Sure. Yep. Um, he was sent to kill a man in revenge for an injury to one of Olaf's men. So it makes sense that he'd do the same thing for Thorgar's death. Sure. The only caution here is that the Fauter ends before we actually learn how Thorarin dies. But contextually, we can assume that Don Olaf sent him to sleep with the fishes. Right. So that's one of Thorgir's killers down already. Yeah, it's what a little anticlimactic, honestly. Uh, the first time I read this, I completely missed that Thorarin had been killed. Yeah, it's really I, fast. I, I kept wondering why no one seemed to care about tracking him down. He's like, well, where are they going to get that guy? Oh, yeah, he's been dead for a while. Oh, yeah, that guy. The guy we already killed. Yeah. Uh, and in case you were wondering why Olaf didn't just send uh, Thormod Kolbrow's poets to kill Thorarin, well, he couldn't because Thormod's already gone. You know, you take your eyes off a guy for one winter. I know. Well, he didn't actually disappear. They know where he went. Mm-hmm. See, he, he only stayed with Olaf for one winter. And then in the spring, he takes a position in a ship that's heading to Greenland. Well... He's supposed to be on a deadly quest for revenge, Andy. You, you mm-hmm. can't let the moss grow under your feet when you're on a deadly quest for revenge. Yeah. So Thormod's not around when Thorarin gets killed. That's that's yeah, the but, key. But Greenland. Why Greenland? Well, I think it's fairly obvious if you remember last episode, because that's where Thorarin's partner, Thorgrim the Troll, lives with his family. Ah, see, he's just off looking for revenge somewhere else. Yes, he is. And it's not clear textually of the order of events here, but it seems that he knows he doesn't need to worry about tracking down Thorarin. Maybe we can assume that someone else is on that mission. Mm-hmm. Or we can just plead narrative convenience here. Either way. Right. Uh, I think I think probably the latter. Uh, so the upshot is that we're moving this saga to Greenland for a while. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since we spent any real time in Greenland. I think the last time might have been Flomana Saga. Ah, uh, yes, yes. The the story of Thorgils, the man who was shipwrecked in Greenland for years. Yeah, Thorgils Skarleg steps in, yeah. Uh, the guy who dealt with murderous servants, undead monsters, a starving child, exposure to the elements, all while MacGyvering his escape from Greenland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anytime I hear a description of Floa Manasaga, I just mm-hmm. don't understand how the author managed to mess up that narrative. Everything <laughs> you just said... Sounds like an awesome story. And you didn't even mention the breastfeeding of the baby. I know. Right. And and Thorgils, if you remember, also fought a duel to the death inside a barrel. Yeah. Ridiculous. How do you how do you make this not a good story? All right. And the gods themselves get involved in his story. How do you mess that up? You know what? We've already we've already harshly judged that saga. So it's uh, (laughs) a 
get back to those. All right, uh, we got ahead of ourselves because Thormod still actually needs to get to Greenland. Hitch a ride, Thormod. Just head down to the docks, stick out a thumb. We got to get things moving here, buddy. Well, he doesn't need to resort to hitchhiking. He just arranges passage passage with uh, Skuf again. Yes, that's Skuf. Uh, Skuf's a Greenlander, and he's looking to return to the old home tundra and see how things are going. Check out the ice caps yeah. and whatnot. Right. Uh, this is another opportunity to skip a bit, because there's another man who joins the ship just as it's about to set sail. He calls himself Guest, and he keeps a hood pulled down over his head. Yeah. Well, we've seen this before. Yeah. Uh, just a reminder... Uh, Guest is one of the names that people in the sagas like to use when they're hiding their identities. Yeah, uh, keeping a hood pulled down over your face is also widely considered a sign that you're hiding your identity. But but sure, <laughs> we'll go with the name. Anyway, uh, yes. Guest and Thormod dislike <laughs> each other immediately and spend the voyage getting on each other's nerves. But when the ship runs into a storm, they pitch in together to bail out the seawater and repair some damaged sail beams, and a grudging respect builds up between them. Now, Thormod doesn't find out anything about him until much later, but Guest is actually another follower of King Olaf. Oh, we're doing this right now? He's a man. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a man named Helgustenar, mm-hmm. who's also been sent to Greenland to seek revenge for Thorgir. Quite interesting. Right. Yeah, Olaf's a uh, belt and suspenders kind of guy. He likes to have a mm-hmm. backup plan for his revenge schemes. Um, yes. But Thormod doesn't know anything about this, which makes sending both of them on the same ship kind of an odd choice. No, no, Thormod doesn't know anything about this, and when they finally get to Greenland, Thormod gets a place to stay with a local chieftain at uh, Bratathlid. It's essentially because Skulf has a quiet word with the chieftain about Thormod being an agent of King Olaf. An agent on a deadly quest for revenge. That's right, but Guest doesn't tell anyone who he is or why he's there, and he just goes off to find lodging with a local farmer in Vik. And I think we're probably going to see him again soon. Yeah. Bye, guest. Uh, oh, and uh, Skuf goes home to his farm at Stokkenes to check in with his foreman, Bjarni. Uh, is that everyone accounted for, I think? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, but so, yeah, sorry, everyone. There's a lot of table setting for this section. Uh, yeah. I think we're done now. Yeah, there is. Uh, but now Thormud's in Greenland. Time for Yay. revenge. Well, mm-hmm. part 19, interlude, Thormod's roving eye. Well, 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 well. Here we are again. <laughs> so, Thormod has come charging into Greenland to strike back at Thorgrim Troll for Thorgrim's role in Thorgir's death. That was a lot of Thors. <laughs> it always is. It always is. Yeah, so, the problem is that now that Thormod's here, he can get the lay of the land. And the news isn't great. About Thorgrim? Yes. No. No, it's not. Uh, Thorgrim turns out to be a very important guy in Greenland. And the author calls him a a great and powerful chieftain. An excellent champion with many men under his command. So, not the easiest of targets. Maybe not, but maybe a Thingman candidate. I I, I would question that. Well, if that weren't enough, Thorgrim lives with his sisters. And he has five nephews who are almost always by his side. His older sister, Thordis, is a widow with four sons, one named Bothvar. There's Falgir, Thorkel, and Thord Hamunderson. Now, Thorgrim's younger sister, Thorun, has a son named Ljot. Uh, that's, the, that's the name that I can... I, not that I pronounce any name well, but that's the name that I can't <laughs> pronounce at all. It's, the LJ is just a lot for me. It's a Ljot. 
Yot for me. Yot. All five nephews, uh, going back to the, the whole scheme here, um, are large and well-built. They're known for their ability in battle and their aggressive natures. And two of them, that's Falger Hamundersen and Ljot, uh, are especially famed for their skill in fighting. So that's a lot of fighting men. And mm-hmm. Thormod brought what? A sharp stick and his wit. <laughs> a, a winning smile, a damaged right arm, and a can-do attitude. Yes, yes. He might need more than uh, just one sharp stick by the end of this. Yeah. Uh, so Thormod spends a bit of time in his new host's house getting comfortable and waiting for a plan to suggest itself. Oh, we, mm-hmm. we, um, we didn't say it earlier, I don't think, but the chieftain Thormod's staying with is Thorko Leifson, the son of Leif Erikson and the grandson of Eric the Red. Mm. So this is the third generation of men in this family controlling a Goldorth at the Greenland settlement. Pretty yeah. impressive. This is about as close as Greenland gets to a royal family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the grandson of the founder of the Greenland colony. He's probably the only person in Greenland willing and able to ignore the anger of a man like Thorgrim Troll. Yeah, and they are more or less rivals. Uh, they have competing settlements with competing power structures that still commingle socially and politically. Yeah, it's different than Iceland, even though the Greenland settlements are clearly built on the Icelandic system. It's still yeah. different. Yeah, it's actually a fairly useful saga for understanding the organization of the Greenland settlement. Obviously, yeah, that's true. We have to take everything with about a lot's wife of salt because this is a highly um, formulaic piece of literature dating from two centuries after its time of action. Mm-hmm. But it's still useful as corroboration of things that we do know about the way people were living in Greenland at this time. Which is, what, about like 1020 or so? Yeah. Uh, when you when you pull it apart, there's a lot here, actually. The the structure of the chieftaincies, the, the social restrictions that are caused by a relative lack of food and drink for celebrations, mm-hmm. the economics, uh, the eagerness to meet with skippers of ships, right? All of it. Yeah. Again, though, there's 200 years separating this description and the reality of what was going on in around 1020. Um, but what we're reading owes a lot to 13th century imaginations. No, I know. Keep that I in know. mind. Uh, this is obviously more about what people around 1200 in Iceland thought the Greenland settlement had been like in the early 11th sure. century. But with that caveat bolted to the woodwork, there's, there's still a lot of interest here. Maybe, yes. Uh, but for the moment... We're not interested in the minutia of Greenland sociopolitics, are we? Oh, we, we could be, Andy. We could be. I mean, I know you you know that I love that kind of stuff. <laughs> but what if what if we tried to finish this saga tonight, John? I don't think we're going to. <laughs> <laughs> we're also not focused on the rivalry between Thorko Leifsson and Thorgrim Troll. No, I know. We're, we're not even focused on revenge at the moment. We're, we're yeah. focused on Thormod's ongoing habit of having his head turned by the ladies. See, that's the thing that uh, that we need to talk about yeah. there. Yeah. Thormod, Thormod, Thormod. Mm-hmm. You, you would think that he'd have learned his lesson after losing the use of his right arm and nearly losing his eyes after his last love triangle. Well, you might think that, Andy, but when the head and the heart are in conflict, you can count on Thormod to follow the genitals. That thing is like a dowsing rod for trouble. Well, he is a poet, and Uh they're very sensitive when it comes to the dictates of their dowsing rods, shall we say. (laughs) Gross. Uh, So there's this woman, Sigrid, who's a servant in Thorkel's house. She's Mm -hmm. been assigned to be hostess for the visiting men, and 
she's spending more and more time in the men's quarters. Well, especially when Thormod's around. Uh, you spotted that, huh? Uh, mm-hmm. The problem is that Sigrid already has a man, a fellow Uh-oh. servant named Lothan. And Lothan doesn't like the idea of Sigrid spending her free time with this uh, curly-haired, good-looking poet from out of town. Well, when you put it like that, you can see a little bit of his concern there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can imagine Thormod approaching this, uh, this beautiful young lady and saying, Hello there, Sigrid. I have some... Original poems for you about your beauty, <laughs> let's say. <laughs> and he, he just thumbs through and pulls out the old Colburn poems. Let's see. I noticed that your brow is not coal black. I'll, I'll just need a moment to do some erasing. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Your white brow, so lovely <laughs> as a black, I mean, a as, white a, as a raven. <laughs> yes, oh, yes. Thormod. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, you know the saga. The saga is fairly discreet, though, as mm-hmm. sagas usually are when it comes to sexual encounters uh, like this. But there, there are some hints that Lothan might be right about Sigrid's interest in Thormod. Yeah, uh, subtle hints like Thormod and Lothan getting into a tug of war match using Sigrid's arms as the rope. I didn't use the word subtle, but you know that was your word. This tug of war happens when Thormod and Thorkel Leifson are walking the property and take Sigrid along. Uh, Lothan doesn't like what he sees as his wife being carted off by the visiting Icelanders. He tries to drag her away from Thormod and ends up failing. And then Thorkel intervenes, saying, Let Sigrid go where she wants. I shall see to it that no shame comes to either of you. You can watch over her when she's not within my sight. And Thorkel's the boss, so what he says goes. Yeah, at least when he's actually present. Yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, so things calm down for a little while, but at the end of the Yule celebrations that winter, Loden enters a room where Thormod and the farm's foreman, Bjarni, are resting on benches. Seeing mm-hmm. his rival so relaxed seems to drive Loden briefly mad. He grabs Thormod by the ankles, drags him across the floor, and nearly gets out the door with him. But Bjarni leaps up, grabs Loden, and throws him to the floor. Very roughly. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Thormod stands up and passes the whole thing off as nothing but high spirits. We Icelanders think nothing of such pranks. We're used to doing <laughs> these things in skin-throwing games. Skin-throwing games. Yes, we saw one of these in uh, Barth Saga. Oh, yeah, we did. I forgot about that. Um, it's a game that uh, involves tightly rolling up an animal skin, usually a bear skin or something like that, something heavy, mm-hmm. and then throwing it very hard at each other while another man tries to tackle them to get the skin. Right, it's a monkey in the middle for tough guys. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, uh, the point is that Thormod diffuses the situation, so good for him. Well, for the moment, yeah, but... Later on, uh, Skuff and Bjarni are readying their ship to sail, and Loden is nearby, holding people's cloaks as they get onto the ship. Mm-hmm. While this is going on, Thormod makes like he's going to board the ship, but then spins around and buries an axe in Loden's head. <laughs> yes, so, so everyone listening is thinking, you know, I imagine they were starting to lose interest. Like, what the heck is going on here? This again, and Funk. then boom, axe in the head. And there that was a body count. Yeah. Uh, so this is why Olaf had to send along another guy to make sure about the revenge, I think. Yeah, Thormod's very distractible. <laughs> yes. So obviously, all hell breaks loose at this point, and Thorkel Leifsson is shouting at his men to kill Thormod on the spot. But Skuf clears his throat and puts an arm around Thorkel's shoulder, and he says, 
Ordering Thormod killed is a grave mistake, Thorker. He is your guest, and he is the king's follower and poet. His life would cost you dearly if the king learned that you were the one who had him killed. And this proves, as so often has been proved before, that anger blinds us to the truth. But we are prepared to offer you compensation for the man Thormod has slain, and the loss it's caused. Okay, so if I'm understanding this correctly, essentially Thormod has diplomatic immunity? Well, that is definitely uh, Skuf's argument. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's trying to smooth things over to avoid an international incident. You Uh, you don't want to mess with the king's man. Yeah. I mean, the the more we get into this saga, the more convinced I am that this theme, this theme of the encroaching power of the Norwegian crown, is a key to the story. We, Mm. We keep returning to this idea of Olaf extending his reach outside of Norway to to attack or kill anyone who offends one of his agents. Yeah. Remember, we said a couple of episodes ago that Thorger's trip to kill Thorer of Hrotha was culturally problematic, right? Yeah. And and an Icelander carrying out a revenge killing against another Icelander on behalf of a Norwegian king, it's not a great look for Thorger. Yeah. And it's something that I think 13th century Icelanders would probably be familiar with. Almost certainly. Uh, but this isn't a lot better, right? Thormod isn't in Iceland, at least, but he's still essentially claiming a license to kill because... Because he has the power of Olaf backing his move. Yeah. Well, he, he's not claiming it. He just killed Lothan. It's Skoof who's uh, invoking Olaf's authority. But True. essentially, yeah. Semantics, but I'll grant you that. Uh, Skoof is the skipper who brought Olaf's assassins to Greenland. Right? Um, and he's a prominent man in Greenland himself. This saga, I think, wants us to feel how much the weight of Norwegian kingship kind of warps the social and political realities of the North. Mm-hmm. And that's leading us slowly but surely to the battle at the end of this saga, which we'll be getting oh, to battle. in our next episode. Uh, next episode? We're not finishing tonight, John? I don't think we are. I'm sorry. All right. Well, let's I'm wrap just... it up. Rune sack. Get the rune sack. <laughs> uh, the point is uh, our protagonists end up representing Norwegian royal authority and its capacity for violent action. Both of them have done yeah, this now. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and if we accept the earlier end of the dating for this saga, it's being written just as the Norwegian kings are doing things like sending Icelandic assassins to kill people like Snorri Sturluson in his own home, mm. and maybe even plotting to undermine Icelandic independence. Yeah, it's it's something I think we have to think about when we're assessing these guys later on. Uh, anyway, the promise and threat of Olaf's interest in Thormod's health is enough to calm Thorkel down. And he accepts a compensation payment for Lothan's death. Mm. And obviously, Thormod relocates to Skuff's farm at this point. Mm -hmm. No sense in continuing to tempt fate by staying within Thorkel's roof and reach. Um, Mm -hmm. But John, what about about the lovely secret? Uh, Lothan's lady friend or wife or whatever she was. Uh, Nothing else is said about her. Uh, Once again, Thormod proves that he likes the ladies, but he's not ultimately the marrying kind. He's more the end up abandoning a courtship with bloodshed involved type. <laughs> but now she's available. Uh, she's eminently available. Um, yeah. And maybe that's the problem. All right, uh, fine. Let's uh, make like Thormod and move on. Part 20. A great blow is imminent. So, at this point, it's fair to ask whether Thormod even remembers what he's supposed to be doing in Greenland. I mean, I think it's fair to ask whether the author remembers what he's supposed to be doing. (laughs) 
you know, I mean, Thorgrim Troll has all these nephews and fighting men around him, and not a lot seems to be happening narrative-wise. Well, you know, we've well, kind of skipped a, through, a few or three things here. This has been a while. Yeah. Well, just be patient. He's getting to it. That's uh, the that's the key. Um, Thormod now goes into a bit of a depression for a while, probably trying to figure out what to do next or who mm-hmm. to kill next, uh, except for the man that he's supposed to kill. <laughs> now, finally, he the asks Icelandic Skuf. Hamlet. Yes, right. Now, finally, he asks Skuf and Bjarni for a man to help him with his revenge, but he doesn't. He doesn't want them. He he wants one of their farmhands, a large, strong farmhand named Ale. He's called Ale the Fool because he's clumsy and not overly bright. The perfect mm-hmm. companion Just for a mission the, like this. The, dream, the boon accomplice. Uh, yes. There's a, there's a line in the Flathair book version of the saga about Ale. Ale became Thormod's companion, but the daughters of stupidity, conceit and false reckoning, tricked him so often that he sometimes hardly knew who he was. Now, that is a uh, medieval Christian author, if oh, ever I've heard one. The Flat Air book version of this saga is just goes on to some really strange lines. It Things like mm-hmm. that. It just Little flights of fancy. I really appreciate them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, Ale's a very interesting choice for a co-conspirator. Yeah, and uh, Skuff and Bjarni are, are, to say the least, surprised, too. <laughs> you want who, who now? <laughs> Ale? The Fool? But Thormond's clearly in clever plan mode, uh-huh. even cunning plan mode, mm. because the the next thing that he asks Skuf for is a specially made axe with a tapered edge for greater speed and sharpness. Well, that sounds promising. And then he waits. More waiting. He I waits waiting. and and waits until summertime. Uh-huh. And then he attends the Gardar assembly, where the people from Einarsfjord and Eriksfjord, uh, that's where they meet and mingle. Mm-hmm. And when Thormod, Ale, Skuff, and Bjarni arrive, well, most of the assembly is already there, setting up their booths. But Thorgrim arrives even later than they do. Fashionably late. Um, mm-hmm. Or rather, making a point about his importance by making that big entrance. Right? Um, that's we've right. seen this before in the sagas, where the... The chieftains like to come to come late so that everybody can see them arrive. That's and right. this this is a big showy arrival. Uh, Thorgrim sails into the harbor in a large ship brimming with armed warriors. Yeah, it's like when uh, Aladdin arrives as Prince Ali, right? I'm gonna take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it what no, it does. It's not like that because what it looks like is a raiding party uh, rather than uh, an that, entourage. That's true. Everyone's pretty intimidated by this show of force. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one even speaks to Thorgrim as his men set up their booth. Right. Uh, now, Thormud's in the crowd, but he acts completely uninterested in Thorgrim. Instead, he sidles up to the ship and picks up a seal-hunting spear from the supplies mm-hmm. they're offloading. And then, with a glint in his eye, he turns. No, no. I know. No, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything. A sailor immediately jumps off the ship and grabs the spear from Thormod's hand. He says, Let go of that spear, man. Holding it won't do you any good. (laughs) Besides, I doubt you'd know how to use such a thing. Yeah, You know, boy, it sure seemed like that was going to be the moment. Didn't Um, it, though? (laughs) Yeah, but Thormod's not looking to start a fight with a random sailor, so he satisfies himself by responding with a verse. Wait, I thought we were done with Thormod verses. No, no, merely done with the dropper. He's still versifying uh, to beat boy. the band. 
Well, let's see if this one's good. First time for everything. He thinks he knows better than I how to wield this seal spear. The shield of Balder knows how to boast. The sea steed's tree races over rocks. I remember more clearly whom the brave-hearted king placed first in his shield wall. Upon me, he who had gold bestowed it. I have some thoughts. Yeah. It's not a not a bad poem, but... It's all right. How long has he been in Greenland? <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, I the know. poem's kind of about his mission yep. and his status, but yep. what what have he's what has he done? Yep. And also, John, it, it correct me if I'm wrong. It comes off a little passive aggressive. A little bit, yeah. A passive aggressive poet. Who would have thought? <laughs> what king put Thormod first in the shield wall? That's another question. Yeah. I have. No, I, I I think that line is probably looking forward a few years. He's going to be an important companion to the king at the Battle of Stickelstad, but that's Uh still some time away. I think he's making a reference sort of to that, which is odd because, not to give any spoilers, but Thormod's only going to have a few hours after the Battle of Stickelstad to sit around composing poetry. (laughs) Yeah, right? He's going to be like, I've got to compose my life story Uh and recite it so someone can memorize it and take it away he's got a, he's got a, he's got a, he's got a quill and some parchment right there on the battlefield just getting it all down he's just grabbing every random stick and uh, just carving carve yep. away boy we got to get it in here <laughs> <laughs> i'm bleeding out anyway so yeah that's where thormod's gonna die okay spoiler sorry <laughs> anyway thormod doesn't want to draw attention to himself at this moment that's what's happening though he does mumble this poem right uh so he slips away he goes to look over Thorgrim's fancy booth uh, before heading back to Skuff's place. And for a couple of days, Thormod just lays low. A couple more days. Meanwhile, yeah, more waiting, more yep. waiting. Wait a second, John, yeah. before I continue here. Yeah. One could also ask about that other gentleman, Guest, who was sent on his way to do the killing Absolutely. too. What's he been up to? Not much. So... So there you go. I mean, maybe we Olaf maybe, maybe we could have chosen his shade. Uh, yeah. Olaf could have chosen his agents of revenge a little better, I think. <laughs> yes, right. Someone someone who who knows the meaning of the word alacrity. That might be who you want to choose. You know, you know what I always say, Andy? Do you want the job done faster? Do you want it done right? Well, fair enough. I'll take it might take years, but we'll get it done. <laughs> oh well. Anyway, meanwhile, once things are set up for him and his crew, Thorgrim begins holding court, and his booth immediately becomes the social center of the assembly. It's almost like Thorgrim has achieved what Thorarin was hoping to achieve. Thorarin wanted all this fame and glory for killing mm-hmm. Thorgair. He doesn't really get any of that. Right. Um, Thorgrim, on the other hand, he's returned to, to Greenland, and I don't know if he, he was probably a well-to-do person before, but he's come back with this fame of, of killing Thorgir. And now he's got disco balls, cash bars. He's got the works nope. in this uh, booth nope. of his. Nope. Got drinking and storytelling. The works. Yes. <laughs> That's more like it. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, and uh, while everyone else is admiring Thorgrim, Thormod spends his time just laying low. In fact, he spends a lot of time sleeping. I think he's we've gotta, said that so many times now. He's just I laying know, low. I know. It's what he does. Well, now, because he spends so much time laying low, he's gotten himself a nice, thick, double-sided fur cloak, dark on one side, white on the other, and he uses it for a sleeping bag. Yes. If you're going to lay low, uh, you might as well be comfortable. So he's just laying low and sleeping a lot. Yeah. 
maybe he's kind of exhibiting some signs of depression here, but uh, I don't want to get too diagnosy about him. But. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I probably I would read it that way, too. Uh, but the point is, he's biding his time. Yeah. And then one day he wakes from a nap to discover that everyone's gone. What? And then Ail the Fool enters. Ail the Fool. Okay, his voice is going to be appropriate. <laughs> here we go. You're too far away oh, from things God. here. No, 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 no. <laughs> doesn't say ale. It doesn't say ale the castrated clown. Just fool. <laughs> You're too far away from things here. There's some excellent entertainment going on. I was over. <laughs> I don't know if I can get through a line with that voice. <laughs> I was over at Thorgrim Troll's booth. That's where everyone else is, too. Man, Thorgrim's been telling quite a story. This story he's telling, who is it about? I don't know who it's about exactly, but well, Thorgrim sure knows how to tell a good, amusing tale. Boy, it's so much fun. He's just sitting in his chair outside his booth, and there's this crowd all around, and they're listening to him. How are you feeling about this uh, voice choice this far in, Andy? <laughs> I feel like we're not going to be with Ale that long, so it's okay. Well, he's actually right. stick around for a while. Well, yeah, if it's know. if it's as entertaining as you say, surely you can name someone in the story. Well, now that you mention it, there's a guy. His name is Thor something. Thor 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 Thorgar. Is I think that's it. He yeah, was some kind of Thor great, something. <laughs> some kind of great. I'm obviously ad libbing a little bit here. <laughs> he's a great warrior. Thorgrim himself was in the story too, which is really neat because the two of them were fighting and they did a lot of attacking. And you gotta go listen. It's really it's a great story. He tells the whole thing. Yes, like C three PO. I think I will. Uh, and he uh, he puts on his cloak with the dark side out, picks up his oh, axe, and heads he for the crowd with Ale following along behind him. And as they approach the booth, the weather turns dark and stormy. Like my cloak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this author is really working up the tension. Now, I know we have been making fun of the author and Thormod for taking their time. But that is how you raise tension in a work yep. of literature. Yep. So, <laughs> you know, so I can't, you know, now that we're here, I can't really right. blame him so much. But uh, in the process of describing it for a podcast episode, it doesn't right. work as well. There's a lot to work. There's, there's a lot to get through. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, that detail, that detail you mentioned of turning mm-hmm. the cloak dark side out, uh, that's obviously significant in yeah. the same way that the stormy weather is significant because wearing a dark cloak in a saga that's well that's shorthand for heading out to kill mm-hmm. it's been a long time since we've seen an author use the dark cloak motif i mean technically he's wearing his sleeping blankie but still that's <laughs> uh, <laughs> right yeah he gets up and puts his, his sleeping yeah, bag on yeah. his shoulders he just turns his sleeping yeah. bag inside out and throws it over his shoulders uh, <laughs> But still, okay, it's dark. That looks, it's that's, dark. That's a little less dramatic, John. <laughs> so uh, Thormod looks at the sky and tells Ale, Both the sky and the earth indicate that a great blow is imminent. If you should hear such a blow, you must keep from harm's way. Run back to the booth as fast as you can. And as Thormod is speaking, a sudden downpour scatters the crowd. Everyone runs for cover except for Thorgrim who's sitting comfortably under a bit of the awning. And Thormod says to Ale, 
All right, you wait here. I'm going around to the front of the booth to see what's happening. Remember to run if you hear a great blow. Now, a wiser man might be suspicious that Thormod keeps harping on that, but <laughs> there's a reason he asked for a guy named Ale the Fool as his companion. <laughs> yep, checks out. <laughs> yes, it so, does. Thormod walks around to Thorgrim and says, uh, What was that story you were telling just now? It can't be briefly told. It's a story of great import. But, uh, you, what's your name? Right, it's important to remember at this point that uh, Thormod wasn't there when Thorgrim was killed. And so Thorgrim yeah. has never met him and has no idea who he is. Uh, and so Thormod says, Oh, I'm called Otrig. Otrig. And whose son are you? I'm the son of Tortrig. <laughs> he chose rhyming names that's hilarious <laughs> so those names are essentially a warning though um now it's it's funny to to uh to me yeah. right now yeah. but it wasn't funny when i read it by the way it's just funny right. to me now right. that we're saying it because uh, we're saying it out loud <laughs> but if you if you are reading the saga and thinking about it uh, the names are essentially a warning to Thorgrim, because Ultric means unreliable, and Tortric means untrustworthy. And Thorgrim recognizes that he's in danger mm -hmm. and leaps to his feet. But Thormod is already swinging his axe, and he chops Thorgrim's head in half right down to the shoulders. And nice. there we might have a noble witticism and best bloodshed. I mean... You know. <laughs> It's a good. It's a good kill. I mean, it's a uh, you know, it's been a long time coming, but it's a very satisfying moment. Uh, a hit, Thor a palpable hit. A hit. He looks uh, at the split. Stormod immediately pulls his axe free and hides it under his blankie, and then he jumps forward, <laughs> catches Thorgrim as he falls, and shouts, "Come out here quickly! Someone has cut Thorgrim down!" Wait, wait, wait! Is this a cunning plan? <laughs> Did we just stumble into a cunning plan, John? Oh, he's Without just even get, realizing it? He's just getting started. Oh, so my goodness. a crowd comes running, and they surround Thormod as he heroically supports Thorgrim's body. I saw mm. the man who did it, but uh, I rushed to help Thorgrim and didn't see where his killer went. Now, some of you come and hold him while the rest of us go look for the man who slew him. What a brave stand he's putting <laughs> up. Wow. This but is still actually, clever. You know this is actually a good plan. I mean, we haven't seen... It's really good. This is a really legitimately cunning plan. Meanwhile, Ale was behind the booth and mm -hmm. heard the blow that Thormod gave to Thorgrim. Mm -hmm. And following instructions, he does immediately run off for home. Yep. Which, John, might look a little suspicious <laughs> to all the people <laughs> looking, looking for someone who might have just killed someone. I mean... And people see him running and operating on the logic that the guy running full tilt away from the murder scene probably did it. They chase him. I mean, it's a reasonable hypothesis. It is a very reasonable hypothesis. Uh, but when they eventually catch up to Ale, he's shaking and he's sweating and looking like a scared rabbit. Now, Flat Air Book offers up an unnecessarily detailed description of Ale at this moment. It says... Every bone in his body shook, all 214 of them. <laughs> That's great. Two <laughs> they counted. All his teeth chattered, and there were 30 of them. And all the veins in his skin trembled with fear. 
and there were 415 of them. <laughs> I love, what? I really what love the Flat Air Book version of the saga. It's so silly. Uh, that is a lot I- of information. <laughs> how, how many bones did it say? Uh, 214, it says here. Okay, I, I know this one. That's actually remarkably accurate. Um, most people will know and quote the 206 number. But if you read up on this, if you count the tiny little bones that are parts of various joints, apparently there's something around 213 bones in the average adult body. Mm. But there's not a universal number that works for everybody. But people's bodies can differ, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's so weird, though. 415 <laughs> veins? I know. Did you say how many bones did you say we did that? Okay. Um, yeah, th- John, this is not a normal English major conversation. I don't recall any other work of literature that... Uh, <laughs> I wasn't an English major, Andy. 30 teeth. Okay, we'll go to the 30 teeth. Most uh-huh. adults have 32, uh, including the wisdom teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going to give them that one. That's really pretty good. Ale might have lost a couple along the way anyway. Sure. Maybe he's I mean, you know, a 32th man. Right. Uh, 400 veins, though. Well, four fifteen. He's got four. Right. He's got four hundred fifteen veins, I, and they're all have, shaken. Yeah, I, I have no idea how to decide what veins count for this one. Um, I do know um, this is an interesting fact. If you stretch the veins and capillaries of your circulatory system end to end, you'll die. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you for that. I mean, certainly <laughs> that's just science, Andy. <laughs> process of counting all the veins. Uh, it's it's usually not good for the person. Right. No, I the the yeah. stat the stat that often gets quoted is that if you uh, if you stretch out all the veins and capillaries in your body, it would reach to the moon and back. That we have an insane number of sort of capillaries and tiny little mini veins uh, in our bodies. I agree that that's true. I don't know if it's even a true statement. Of, I just know that's something that gets quoted a lot. I think that we have a lot of those. Uh, would it go to the moon and back? Maybe not. But could that's you what I've maybe run. Maybe you run from New York to L.A. You know. There you go. There you go. <laughs> anyway, I, the point is... My veins are more ambitious. <laughs> so you're more of a, 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 a Vladivostok to Barcelona type. There you go. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. This is this a ticket to ride veins now? Yes, yes. Uh, all right. Well, the point is, back to what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ale's kind of nervous. Maybe a little sweaty. <laughs> maybe a little jiggly. His right. heart's a jiggling. All the, all the uh, veins quivering. Yeah. And the men who catch him, well, they realize pretty quickly that this guy in a flop sweat probably isn't a hardened killer. And so they just leave him alone and return to the search. Right. Meanwhile, Thormut is separated from the group searching for the killer. And as soon as he's alone, he flips his security blanket cloak around to the white side. And the Mm -hmm. next time he runs into a group of searchers, he identifies himself as Vigfus and says he's also looking for the killer. Well, well, well. And he's not going to rest until the real killer is found. It was a one-armed man. That's the idea, yeah. Uh, it actually was a one-armed man. Then <laughs> uh, he, he hides out on a headland for a little while. Uh, and after a few hours, a ship sails around the coastline and picks him up. It's Scoof and Bjarni, and they're Ooh. there to help Thormod escape. You see, they've been putting the pieces together. Mm-hmm. They heard about Thorgrim's death. They know that Thormod was sent by Olaf to avenge Thorgir's death, and they know about Ale running away. And they've heard about a guy in a white cloak named Vigfus lurking around a headland not far from the assembly. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, Vigfus, by the way, means eager to kill, which we've seen in some other stories. Right. Um, now, they have solved the case, and now <laughs> they are saving Thormod's bacon. They've, they've unraveled his clever puzzle. Yeah. Uh, you know what would have been clever? He yeah. could have just mentioned it all to them, said, hey. Yeah. You know what I'm going to do, guys? <laughs> yeah. It's like, meet Although, me on the headland. Right. In fairness, he remember, it was something of an impulse move, right? He When he hears that uh, Thorgrim is telling the story, uh, he goes and sort of acts on the moment. That's uh, true. But, but I suppose he, he could have left a note. The... He could have left a note. And that's why you always leave a note. That's right. That's right. Uh, also involves a one-armed man. Right. So uh, <laughs> once he once he uh, hops aboard, um, Thormod is questioned about what happened. Now, Andy. Mm. I sense uh, poetry on the way here. Is there poetry See, on the way? you're a crack detective too. Uh, I am. Thormod responds with a series of verses. Uh, we only need to include one of them. My left hand is no hindrance. Many instances I recall. The poet's fame would have been dashed to the ground had I dealt a softer blow to the black head of that bringer of piercing storms. For I aim death at the god of the life-stealing sword. Mm, mm, mm. We, uh, I know we've been joking about the one-armed man, but we haven't really talked that much about Thormod still, uh, we haven't really talked that much about the fact that Thormod's still left-handed. Yeah, it's clearly something he thinks about. He's got a he's got mm-hmm. a thing about calling himself a left-handed man. Uh, in that respect, he reminds me of Onan Treefoot. Right? There's a mm-hmm. real thought going into the the long-term psychological effect of a body-altering injury. Uh, I don't think this author is as insightful as the Greater Saga author about that experience, right? About the trauma of an injury like this, uh, like a body-changing injury. But there's still an awareness of how that experience might have a lasting effect on a person's self-image. Yeah. And that's particularly true when the injured person confronts the trauma every single day or every hour the way that Onan does with his lost leg or that here Thormod does with his incapacitated arm. Right. And there's another thing that Thormod brings up in the second verse. I know I said one verse. Humor me for a second. Okay. Yeah, sure. And not like it's a school night or something and I don't have an 8 a.m. class tomorrow, which I do. (laughs) Which I do. Great wonder it was that the trees of Steelhale didn't recognize me with my full crop of black curls. Much marks my speech, too. Wait a minute. So part of that is just pragmatism. Thormod's curly black hair stands out in an Icelandic crowd. Okay. But the last line is interesting. What marks his speech? What does he mean there? Right. It's not a major part of the story, but Thormod sees himself as marked by a stutter as well. It's a it's a significant characteristic for a man whose self-definition is so tied to his ability as a poet. Now, we could get into a whole discussion here, and I'm really tempted. What I makes know. you think it's a stutter, for example? Uh, well, it's the um, – there's a num- there's a couple of references here and elsewhere. Uh, remember, he's got another uh, Thouter. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's also been some scholarship about it. Yes, you're, you're right. He does have a Thouter. And it seems to me, John – that it may be time right after we finish this one to maybe do a, a, a saga short and see what Thormod's up to. Oh, I think we're going to have to check in on him, yeah. I think we will. So, let's look forward to that. Uh, well, so, but it'd be tempting to go into a whole thing about the stammer and what the significance of that might be. But I'm going to save it. Um, I'm starting plans for an episode that finally just deals with disability in the sagas directly. 
and speech issues will be a part of that. <laughs> Come on now. I think at some point we're not actually allowed to promise any more special episodes. No more shush, Saga Breach, John. For now, they just... I don't want to wander too far from the narrative. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm going to take the high road here and go back to our text. Uh, Thormod okay. has finally taken revenge. Is, hey. a, is a huzzah in order here? Huzzah! Maybe. Uh, his <laughs> friends are happy for him too, but they also want to leave well enough alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bjarni says to him, I don't think you need to go any further in avenging Thorgir. You've done a great deal already. You've slain the second greatest chieftain in Greenland, and you're a foreigner, and you're alone. Hmm. Already it's not certain that you'll be able to escape. Thorgrim leaves behind many able-fighting men among his kinsmen. Well, that's probably good advice. That's very good advice, and it helps to, once again, again, we made fun of him for taking a while, but... It makes sense for him to have taken a while. This guy was heavily guarded. He's got mm-hmm. a ship full of armed men. It was a dicey situation trying to kill the guy. Yep. Once you've done it, it's even worse because now they're looking for you. Right. And it's not going to be long before people realize that the recently arrived Icelander who disappeared the same hour that Thorgrim was killed, <laughs> maybe that guy had something to do with the whole dead chieftain thing. Right. So... uh do we think Thormod's going to take the nice man's advice? I'm going to give you three guesses. Part 21. A deadly quest for revenge, part two. Deadlier and revengelier. So, all right. At this point, it's important to remember that this is all taking place in Greenland. This isn't Norway or even Iceland, where a a wanted man could conceivably find a farm somewhere to stay and be out of sight. This is a small community of people, and Thormod's just killed one of the most important people in it. Yeah. And as Bjarni said, Thorgrim left a lot of strong warriors behind to seek revenge, especially his five nephews, led by Falgerd Hamundersen and Jot of Langanes. Not to mention all the other people who just don't like the idea of a killer from Norway walking in and chopping down local chieftains. Right, which is... Probably almost all the other people around. A lot of them, definitely. Uh, so, Skuff and Bjarni hide Thormod in a sea cliff cave near Stokkenes and promise to return after the assembly ends. Now, this cave is set about a third of the way down a sheer cliff, and it's mm-hmm. very difficult to get into and out of. Uh, it might be a plot point later. So It might, it that. might. Uh, so, Skuff and Bjarni leave him there and return to the assembly, where they're not surprised to find that people are a bit upset. Folger Hamundersen and his brother Bolvar bring a suit against Thormod for their uncle's death, and Thormod is officially outlawed. Is this, John, is this the first person that we've seen outlawed in Greenland? You know, I think so. I mean, we I know we talked way back in Eric the Red Saga about how the appeal of Greenland for someone like Eric is that it was impossible to be thrown out. <laughs> he finally found a place where he wouldn't be run out of town on a rail. Uh, but yeah, time has passed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was two generations ago. Right? Things are things are changing in the 11th century. Greenland's getting really clicky. <laughs> sure. So <laughs> Thormod's managed to get himself outlawed in a land settled by outlaws. Good for him. Yep. Yeah, it's a badge of honor. Uh, again, small community. Right. It's it's not mm-hmm. easy to find a way to escape from Greenland. Uh, this is an Iceland with a steady stream of shipping crossing back and forth to Norway or Denmark. Uh, being exiled from Greenland is a problem because getting out of Greenland anonymously is going to be a challenge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Skuff and Bjarni return to Thormod and bring him some supplies, but they warn him he needs to stay out of sight until they're ready to get him out. Yeah, and in the meantime, Thormod is getting bored sitting in a cave halfway up a cliff. Which is understandable. It it really is. Uh, the so view boring. pales after a while. <laughs> but when one of the Sworn Brothers gets bored, there's usually trouble. And Thormod isn't in Thorgish class when it comes to carnage and chaos, but he's still a man used to violence as a way of expressing his displeasure. And as it happens, he knows where to find the Hamundersons' farm, the farm of the nephews of Thorgrim Troll. Yeah, we haven't really seen Thormod spread himself yet. He's always looked like the reasonable one because Thorgir was such a force of destruction, right, that you know, when you're when you're standing next to a supernova, a nuclear bomb doesn't seem that bad. <laughs> right. uh, but but now uh, now that Thormod's on the aforementioned deadly quest for revenge, uh, sitting in a cave twiddling his thumbs isn't doing it for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one morning he grabs his specially made assassin's axe and climbs out of his cave up to the land. And he's only gone a short distance inland when he meets with a large and disheveled looking man walking along the path. Now, this is a man named Odi Laus, and he's quite a picture. Mm-hmm. Odi is, as the saga tells us, a big man with an unpleasant and off-putting appearance who would be hard-pressed to find a travel companion. He wore a cloak made from all sorts of tatters and rags. It looked rather like the folds of a sheep's stomach. Huh. His hood was the same, and it was also infested with well-fed lice. Oof. That's oh, rough. The well-fed. That's that's rough. Oh, it's just disgusting. Um, every once in a while, you know, as a parent, uh, <laughs> lice come home. Uh, it's happened a couple times, and yeah. um, oh, it's just the worst. It's Still have nightmares. Mm-hmm. So Thormod is talking with Odie, and Odie tells him. I'm a known figure around the peninsula. I wander what around mostly, <laughs> and people deal fairly with me, and I know a thing or two as well. And who are you now? I am named Torad. Yes, Torad. That's definitely <laughs> named Torad. <laughs> At this point, Thormod is just making up names for fun. What's well, going on here? Well, he's a master of disguise, as we're, as we're about to see. When what do you do, Torad? I'm a merchant. Would you uh would you like to trade me for that coat of yours? Oh now, you needn't mock me. No, I mean it. I'll give you my cloak for yours, if you can carry a message to Stockinus for me by this evening. Tell Scuff and Bjarni there that you met a man named Torad and swapped clothes with him. That's all. Do that much and you may keep the coat. And Odi, of course, takes the deal. Mm-hmm. Swaps the cloaks. And so he gets Thormod's blanky cloak, mm-hmm. and Thormod's got a lice-infested Technicolor dream coat, which well, I, I really want to. Yeah, I want to vomit. Yeah, it's full of lice. It's really more of a Technicolor nightmare coat. Uh, oh, it's so bad. The, the next step is obvious. Uh, Thormod, wearing the lousy nightmare cloak, uh, walks to the farm of the Hamundersons at Anersfjord and asks whether they're at home. A servant who thinks that it's old Odi Laus at the door. Tells him that Balthvar is away traveling, but the other three brothers are out fishing. Mm-hmm. So he wanders down to the shore and waits. And the three Hamundersons who are fishing, um, they are Falgar and Thorkettle and Thord. 
And they stay out until dusk. So they're out there having a good old time. Right. Effortlessly sailing around, in and out from shore, tacking into the wind. You know, being competent sailors, unlike some people we could name. They're out there singing those sea shanties and whatnot. Yeah, you know, being competent sailors. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, are there any sea shanties about people who are bad at sailing? Ask Thormod the poet. That's that's what I'm wondering. I mean, not not tragic bad, not like the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald or Barrett's Privateers. (laughs) Just, you know, crappy sailors. Uh, well, there's the uh, the Gilligan's Island theme song, you know. Oh, there's that. Uh, but no, no, they're they're a mighty sailing man and a skipper brave and sure. That's true. They're it's the a weather. fearless crew, Andy. That's mm-hmm. not bad. It's only the visuals and, you know, the fact that they shipwrecked on an uncharted desert isle that makes them look bad. Actually, no, now that I say that, that counts. I'll, I'll count that. <laughs> well, you're very generous. I don't know where you're headed with all that. But, well, let's return to the Hamundersons and uh, find out what happens when they get tired of showing off their sailing chops. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when they return to the beach. And as they're unloading the day's catch, they see a large, shaggy man walking to them in the evening gloom. And they immediately recognize Odie Laus's cloak. As you would. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's sort of a, a, a real survival trait in the local community of knowing to stay far away <laughs> from right. that cloak. Oh, boy. Here uh, he comes. Now, Thormud, who's presumably not in the best of moods after scratching at the lice in his clothes all day, wastes no time. He whips his axe out from under the cloak and buries it in Thorkel Hamunderson's head and mm. then turns and runs. He's got a signature move yep. at this point, doesn't yep. he? Yeah. And uh, a pretty reasonable understanding of his abilities here. Yeah. I mean, it's still two to one. And one of those is Falgir, who's known as a skilled fighter. So Thorma decides killing Thorkel is enough for now. He just throws off Odie's Technicolor Nightmare Cloak and races across the headland to the cliff above his cave. Now, probably still scratching all the way, um, yeah. <laughs> but Thor Thor is right behind him, and Falgar, he's a bit further back, but he's coming too. Uh-huh. Uh, Thormod reaches the cliff and sort of baseball slides over the edge. Right? He knows the handholds he has to grab, and he's able to swing down to the grass ledge outside his cave entrance. Yeah. Thor goes right over the edge after him, but in the dark, he misses his footing and twists a knee as he lands on the ledge. Thormod sees his chance and buries his axe in Thord's back. Thord is killed at once. It's a great blow, but the blow is too strong, and Thormod's axe gets stuck between Thord's shoulder blades. Oof. But now Falgar comes sliding down the cliff, and he spots mm-hmm. Thormod bent over his brother, trying to free his axe. Falgar then leads with his own axe and deals a brutal blow to Thormod's exposed back. Yeah. It's a bad wound, uh, and Thormod has to abandon his axe in a desperate attempt to protect himself. He's able to grab Falgar, but he's weaponless and injured, and he quickly realizes that Falgar is stronger than he is. And remember, Thormod only has one functioning arm at the best of times, and now he's got an axe wound in his back. Yeah, it's not good. Uh, the two of them wrestle for a moment, and Thormod offers a quick prayer that some of King Olaf's good luck might assist him. And we've seen people pray for some of King Olaf's assistance before. Mm-hmm. As he's thinking that, He's able to knock the axe from Falgar's hands, and it falls down the cliff into the churning waters below. And then, in an absolutely desperate move, Thorgir um, does a sort of uh, Reckenbach Falls move. He tackles Falgir, and the two of them go over the edge and plummet into the sea. This is a great scene in a movie. Yep. 
I mean, it's got everything you're looking yep. for in an action I mean, film. They, you know, they both just go sort of fighting all the way down, plummeting into the water. Well, and you can see that 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 you know when the the weapon falls and the desperation on both men's faces, and then they clash and end up going down in this horrible uh, scene. Wow! Yep. Uh, they do both, as in the movie, they both survive the fall sure. and immediately start trying to drown each other. Although I fall believe still- Rock falls, only one of the people who fell survived. Okay. Well, Falgir still has the upper hand because Thormod's losing a lot of blood and with his bad arm, he's got enough trouble just staying above the water. Falgir holds him under the water as Thormod continues thrashing around. It's it's a violent, nasty scene. Yeah, and this isn't the most glorious ending for our protagonist, so it's a good thing he's not going to die like this. Yay! Instead, he heroically yanks Falgir's trousers down, no, breaking his belt and dragging him under the surf. He really does. He pulls the man's pants down. <laughs> it's dirty work at the crossroads, I gotta say. Well, I mean, it lacks grace, sure, but this is life or death, Andy. It's uh, uh-huh. it's pants or be pantsed, and Thorma's <laughs> not the one with the broken belt. That's right. He, uh, he manages to climb on top of Falgir, who's now struggling with his tangled breeches, and holds his head underwater for a long, long time. Man, yeah. I mean, I that can we we're chuckling at it a little bit but this could be a extremely violent oh, desperate can you scene. imagine sort of the horror of that moment yeah this is this is uh this is some some rough stuff right. um and after a couple of minutes the thrashing stops and i think what what the the text does really well here is is we we hold on to this moment uh um, I think we're in this moment, and we can feel the that kind of desperation and and fear and tension. Right. Um, that's when Falgar's back and butt pop up out of the water. Yep. His body slowly rolls over, and Thormod is disturbed to see Falgar's face frozen in a grin. Yeah, I mean, it's you know the the author's doing a really good job here of kind of you know that it's it's sort of grimly humorous and horrifying at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's very creepy and all, but Thormod actually has more serious problems than just mm-hmm. being grinned at by a corpse. His strength is gone, his blood loss is severe, and he's stuck in rough surf at the foot of a steep cliff. Yeah. He nearly drowns, uh, but manages to drag himself up onto some jagged rocks sticking up out of the water. And then he collapses on the rocks and waits to die. Now, you know, it's possible he didn't think this deadly quest for revenge all the way through. Now that he's laying well, there, he's probably thinking, I, like, I wonder. Hmm. You say that. I mean, nobody plans to get an axe in the back. Uh, but frankly, Thormod would probably agree with you. I mean, <laughs> you know, if he weren't busy coughing up salt water and bleeding to death. But <laughs> as Thormod settles in with the popcorn and milk duds to watch his life flash before his eyes, he's interrupted by the creaking sounds of a ship being rowed quietly through the dark water. Hmm. And then he's grabbed just as he's about to lose consciousness. And two men lean over him. I told you this would make a great movie. It's yep. very dramatic. Thank you. Yeah. So to understand what's happening, we have to we actually have to rewind our story to that morning. Although I think right. clever listeners and readers right. can figure it out. Right. Uh, rewind sound effect. Rewind sound effect. That. So when Thormod and Odi Laos exchanged cloaks and parted ways, Odi kept his end of the bargain. He finds a ferry and travels to Skuf's farm at Stokanes, and there he tells Skuf about the strange man with the curly black hair who called himself Torad and traded cloaks with him. 
Now, Skuld recognizes Thormod's cloak at once, and he and Bjarni realize that Thormod's about to do something monumentally dangerous. And so, <laughs> that evening, they secretly took a ship, rode across the fjord, and were intending to climb up to the cave. But instead, they saw something crawling onto the rocks below the cave, and they rode over to see whether it was a seal or maybe something else. And it was something else. Yes. So once they pull Thormod up, Skulf asks what happened. And I want you to stop me if you've heard this before, but Thormod, blood loss and all, he's got a verse ready. Of course he does. I dodged and darted in the salty brine, and strangely, Falgir's arse popped up and down and gaped at me. The fool died a shameful death. I saw the depths of depravity on that base god of sword storms. Then he swung dead eyes on me and grinned. Oh, man. I did not expect (laughs) to hear about a gaping ass. Yep. Um, John, did you, you didn't have to use the word gape, did you? Why did you say that? <laughs> well, first of all, I didn't use the word gape. Our translator used the word gape. No, no, no. Uh, John, but, come on um, now. Now, I, yeah, no, that's, that's a that's, horrible choice. Well, hang on though. Did you look at the Old Norse? Because I, did, I you know, I usually do, but I did not. Yeah, let's, let's is, have a quick look here. Uh, if you go and look, this is, uh, uh, this poem, the line that I think we're, we're interested in. Um, <laughs> it describes the thing he's looking at, Hans okay. Rosaklof Gandhi. Okay, and remind he, me what uh, <clears throat> the Gandhi is. And Gandhi what is a, would be a uh, gaped. <laughs> it is literally <laughs> gaped. Okay, so my complaint that yeah. the choice of the word gaped yeah. uh, is unfounded. Yeah. Uh, gaped, uh, and, yawned wide, I suppose you could say. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, Please uh, tell me what the the rosa cloth well, is. I think you just don't want to say it. I think you know it. Don't just want, just want to say it. But um, uh, rosa oh cloth would be the crack of the butt, the crack of the ass. <laughs> um, the rasa is the arse, and the cloth would be the oh cleft of the ass. So his what a brilliant his butt poem. crack gaped at me. After John, after all of that dramatic <laughs> violence, yep. he's lying on the rocks, bleeding out. He gets picked up, and he's got this in his back pocket. I, you know what? <laughs> well, where else would you keep your the dirtiest, <laughs> the dirtiest, funniest poem we've read in uh, Saga things? I, well, I, I, that's that's a big claim, but it's a uh, uh, it's certainly something. Um, I, I gotta say, it raises my opinion of Thormod quite a bit. That uh, <laughs> lying there, sort of slowly dying from an axe wound to the back, uh, this is what he comes up with What as potentially his sort of dying words. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All right, all right, all right. Let's get back to serious here. Yeah, stop cracking wise. Mm. I'm just going to jump back in then if that's all right yeah, with you. That's fine. <laughs> Look, so putting putting that aside, yeah, putting that aside, yep. uh, he can't move. He's yep. lost most of his blood through a gaping wound in his back, <laughs> but he's still slinging verses. That's impressive. Oh, I mean, he was lying on the rock waiting to die. What else did he have to do? 
something about something about this guy when he's about to die, he comes up with the best verses. <laughs> well, I would say maybe don't make a poem about your opponent's buttocks. <laughs> I mean, I mean, did look, he really you, call you die your butt? way, Andy? <laughs> you did die your really, way, let him die his. Did he really call Falgar's butt the depths of depravity? <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> I mean, that's just he really hilarious. Did. Uh, I, I got to say, this entire verse is a little harsh. Uh, call, calling <laughs> Falgar a fool with a depraved tuchus kind of ignores a few inconvenient facts, like the fact that Falgar was totally about to kill him oh, until yeah. he yanked the man's pants <laughs> down and then drowned him. Oh, my God. I mean, it's it's kind. I mean, how does that not win best bloodshed? That's the craziest thing I've <laughs> encountered, or notable witticism at least. Let's I give him notable witticism. Something. Jesus, that's insane. All right, so Scuf and Bjarni have to wrap yeah. Thormod in a cloak and and carry him into the ship. Yeah. Uh, then they carry all his belongings down out of the cave, which can't be much, but he's got some stuff and. Mm-hmm. Well, they just, they can't leave him there in the cave anymore. They've got to start looking for a place to hide him where he can be safe. And these two are either very on board with Thormod's revenge kick, or they're just very interested in supporting Olaf's agent. I don't know, but they're devoted to this guy. Yeah, I, I kind of suspect it's more about Olaf. Uh, Thormod is frankly turning out to be a huge problem. A it's, huge it's, inconvenience. It's hard to imagine what allegiance they'd feel to him that would justify all this effort. But Olaf's a powerful man, and... He's Scuf's employer. Yeah. That said, there is that whole guest thing. Um, they brought Thormod right. in as a guest and showed him hospitality. Right. And so there's a there's a bond that's created there. They they do, sure. you know, um, they're at least staying loyal to him. But I mean, as we're um, going to see, this is, you know, this is just going to keep devolving for them. They're going to, you know, this is, yeah. Greenland's getting a little hot, not just for Thormod, but for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think you're right. You know, showing loyalty to Olaf's man is an obvious way of affirming their allegiance to Olaf, and that can right. pay dividends in the future. Sure. And that makes sense as a motive in this saga, right? Uh, uh, Paul Schock says that this saga is built on an underlying theme of celebrating loyalty as the cardinal virtue. Yeah. Uh, Thormund's determination to see through this revenge for Thorgir, no matter what it costs him. Uh, and also his desire to serve Olaf, right? These are sort of jointly the culmination of that idea. Mm-hmm. But other people in the saga, like Skuff and Bjarni here, are showing that same careful attention to the demands of loyalty. Yeah. But now they are stuck with a badly wounded agent of Olaf's who needs healing and hiding both at once. Thormund's not going to die on the rocks, but... He's also far from being saved yet. Right. So at this point, Skuff needs someone who can both keep Thormod alive and keep him safe from his enemies. And at this point, his enemies are pretty much everyone else in Greenland. Yeah, this isn't going to be easy. No, it's not. But it is a good opportunity for a cliffhanger. I mean, actually, about 10 minutes ago was better for a cliffhanger. When Thormod was actually literally hanging from a cliff with two men trying to kill him, that would have been a good one. I mean, a bit on the nose, I would think. Uh, <laughs> um, so we're, we're going to leave Thormod here, uh, broken, bleeding, probably slightly hypothermic, uh, running out of places to hide and composing poetry about uh, men drowning in the surf. Uh, we're going to pick it up there next time and we will finish this saga. I know, pinky swear, the next one is the last one. Except for the judgments. Except for judgments. Um, 
So, what do you think, John? Do we uh, do we have time for one question tonight? Maybe two? Yeah, uh, how about a comment and a question? I've still got a spot of beer left. Let's go for it. All right. Very good. Well, let's start with a comment because right. I think comments are, are always good. And I think you're going to like this one. Yeah, so we have a comment, which I think you're you're going to enjoy because it is about the Angelica, the, the, oh, the moment the, when Thorgair and, uh, and Thorvald were collecting Angelica right. the, in the, the previous episode. The wild celery, yes. The wild seller, yes. Um, this comment is from Njal Armstrong, uh, which is his real name. Um, he says, Dear John and Andy, thanks again for your wonderful podcasts. I particularly enjoyed this one for its discussion of the plant Angelica, which is called Klon. It's a, it's a man of specialized interests right there. That's right, yes. Uh, he says, I almost always tear off a bit of the plant to chew on when I come across it in my walks. Oh, wow. And I bore any companions who are walking with me with my enthusiasm for its importance in Viking times. He says, uh, I did not know this story that you guys were telling about Thorgar and Thormod with the uh, with the Angelica. So I'm going to add it to my repertoire for people that he wants to traumatize when he's walking with them. Happy to help. He, yeah, yeah. He says, I normally bring up the episode in Olaf Tryggvason's saga where the king brings a stalk of Angelica to his queen and she starts oh. shaming him into instead going to Poland to get her inheritance, mm. leading to his famous death at Svolder. And John, I think we talked about um, this relationship when we uh, were guests on uh, Rex Factor. That's right. That's time. right. We came up on that one. Yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, so this one has us has it set in Poland. Um, anyway, he says, I've often wondered whether this story has any further depth that maybe the episode that you guys were talking about may also allude to. Perhaps... It's because Angelica is rich in vitamin C, making it a preventative to scurvy, and therefore potentially a great boon for long-range sea voyages. Did the king actually bring the Angelica to his queen to say that he was preparing to sail to Poland? Were the sworn brothers gathering Angelica because things were too hot for them in Iceland and they're getting ready to go? (laughs) Or am I clutching at Angelica straws, hanging over the ledge of wishful thinking? (laughs) <laughs> so that is a, a comment from uh, from Njal Armstrong. Very interesting. Very good. That's a, that's excellent. Nice pull on the Olaf Tryggvason saga. Yeah, it is. Yeah, wouldn't have wouldn't have grabbed that ourselves. So that's what we love about our listeners. They know stuff and make connections. Uh, that's the second one in this episode um, that yep. we've gotten. So thank you guys for sharing that kind of stuff with us. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, we've also got another question, yeah. John. This one, uh, this one comes to us from Sam. Um, came a few weeks back, probably slightly more than a few weeks, uh, mm-hmm. but you know we're going to do it now. But forgive us if it's no longer timely. Okay. <laughs> Sam writes. First off, I want to say thank you for all the years of content. I'm a longtime listener, and I appreciate how many episodes you two have cranked out over the years while keeping it entertaining. In the most recent episode, uh, you mentioned how excited you were for the Green Knight movie. Oh, boy. And I would love to hear what you both thought of it Uh and how well of a job it did at communicating the themes of the original text. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think John may have given a... Uh, a little bit of his thoughts away on the subject. Well, there, no, no, but, no. Uh, I, I merely hinted at a feeling. Um, oh, that's what but it was. What do you say, Andy? You saw it before I did. Uh, was it exciting? Did it fulfill your oh, wildest desires? Did you burst <laughs> with excitement at the sight of the girdle? Andy, was the climax <laughs> everything you were hoping for? Stop, please. <laughs> or uh, did please. the wanderings of Gowan and the derivations from the text leave you a bit limp and uninspired? <laughs> Oh, I was so naughty. 
I am going to, uh, having seen the movie, I'm going to pretend that I didn't hear any of uh-huh. that. Um, but okay, let's let's start with this. If you are planning to see The Green Knight when it comes out on VHS sometime in the future, uh, and you don't like spoilers, then uh, you're going to want to skip ahead about, well, actually I can't predict how long we're going to talk about this. Not very long, and um, it is a school night. Uh, hang on, mm. I'm going to write you a note that tells you to jump in the DeNorian after you finish editing. You can. Uh, oh, good idea. You can pop right in here at this point and let everyone know how far to skip. Hang on, I think I hear you coming. Hey, hey, uh, I don't think you guys are going to be shocked to hear this, but we talk about this for almost 10 minutes. You're going to want to skip ahead. Nine minutes. Yeah, nine minutes. Um, sorry. There you go. Just skip ahead for that amount of minutes and you'll be ready to hear <laughs> us say goodbye. Because honestly, this is probably the last thing we're going to talk about. Okay, well then, uh, how did we feel about the Green Knight? Well, here's what here's what I would say. Visually stunning. I think it's visually yep. a great movie. Yeah, fascinating. It, it checks visually. a lot of my boxes for for um, what I'm looking for in in good movies. Mm-hmm. Um, how does it do with you know? I gotta say, I was confused from the get go, <laughs> and and things didn't get much better. Although. Um, I do appreciate some of the the nods towards medieval literature mm-hmm. in general. There's uh, in Gawain's travels, um, there's a bit of a saint's life, a nod to a saint's yes. life in there. I thought that was really interesting. Yes, um, it's not part of the Sir Gawain story, right? But definitely a high. Spot. But that is, yeah. I what I one thing I did like about the movie was the that journey. Uh, every time I've ever read or taught Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, there's this whole journey section that's basically glossed over. It says. Yeah. He went into basically what we would think of as Wales and saw all kinds of crazy stuff. And then he arrives uh, kind of tired and broken at the castle. Um, I always want to know what the hell's going on right. on that journey. Right. That seems like a great story. Right. Essentially, and I think that's kind of, what it's the, all just kind of waved away, right? You're not really interested in hearing Yeah, exactly. Listening to his fights with giants and trolls and wolves, are you? Let's get, let's get on no, to the sitting yeah. around in bed all day. That's right. That's right. So I think you know that I always saw that as a missed opportunity. Um, clearly not part of what the poet was was interested in. Right. But the filmmaker also saw it as a, a missed opportunity and really kind of spent a lot of time on that. And I, I appreciated that part of it. Did you? Um, even though it's not canonical. Yeah, yeah. There's some weirdness in there, but but I, I just like that they took some time to say here's what was going on on the journey. Yeah. Yeah, but not not so much for you. Uh, no, I think <clears throat> I think I'm definitely more on the on the uh, negative camp than you are. I mean, I I agree with you. It, visually, an amazing film. Uh, I would say this is clearly the work of somebody who is painting with film, and I'm not the sort yeah, of yeah. Pre- person who says pretentious crap like that all the time. Uh, the this is an artistic movie, right? It's it's the color palette, the surreal elements that are woven in and out of the narrative, the the calculated lack of sound at various points in the film, uh, I thought oh, was very yeah. effective. Uh, it's all very interesting. Like that that scene where he's leaving, uh, whatever, where Arthur's court, right? And it's just the sound of the horse's hooves yes. on the on the cobblestone yep. on the path. Uh, it, it takes so long. I think you had commented in yeah. when we were texting. He's still about away. just is it 
he's still going. He's um, never going to stop. Yeah. But also the you know the moments uh, the last 15, 20 minutes of the film, right when when they it sort of eschews dialogue completely, and we just move into yeah. this uh, set of vignettes. Interesting the choice of the Green Knight. It's, absolutely, that's the problem I have with it. Is ultimately, I found I, a I lot agree. of that kind of stuff very derivative. Uh, I've seen it before, and you know it wasn't something that was new to me. It was well done. It was well executed. It was artistically done. But it wasn't mm-hmm. something new. It wasn't something that I haven't seen. And I didn't understand yeah. why it was being bolted on to the story of Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't I don't ask for slavish devotion to the text. I, I know how adaptations work. Uh, and frankly, everyone from the Gilgamesh author on has been ham-fistedly mistreating source texts. I don't have to be happy about it. Uh, and in this case, what we have is, I think, an auteur who wanted to make a film that explored... I don't know, aimlessness, ennui, but also devotion and also self-doubt, right? Meaning of life stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think some of it does succeed in reaching a kind of medieval tone poem uh, in in thinking about those things, right? I mean, you gave the example of Winifred in The Abandoned Keep. Uh, But that, I think, did a great job of hitting the note, right? The, The same sense of kind of creepy unreality that medieval saints' lives sometimes strive for. Uh, yeah, but uh, mostly this was a film focused on its own message and not on acting in service to the story that it supposedly exists to tell. And I found that very frustrating. Yeah. Uh, I'd find that more forgivable if the film's message ever came together into something clear. But for me, it never did. Uh, it becomes an exercise in kind of stylish and sometimes angry ennui rather than a film with a coherent message. Uh, like I say, mm. it's a it's a tone poem of a film, right? It does that well. Well, but I wanted a narrative. I wanted something that would bear more than a passing resemblance to the actual poem of Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Uh, and so I was disappointed in it for that reason. But you know, it was it was a it was a trip. It was a ride. I mean, you know, it's worth watching. It's definitely that, yeah. Uh, because it is. I, I do like. Something. Yeah, I think it, you know, I'm in the kind of middling camp. I don't think the movie does as much damage to the poem as something like Zemeckis' Beowulf. But right. at the well, same time, how does it compare to it, uh, Sword of the Valiant? I, you know what? I'm going to be honest with you, John. Sword of the Valiant isn't on the tip of my mind. Really? If I've ever seen that movie, oh I don't recall it that's at the, all. That's the, I know what you're talking okay, about, yeah, 19, but I This is the don't 1984 film starring Miles O'Keefe and Sean Connery, also theoretically based on Sir Down and the Green Knight. And very much like this movie, after the first fit, after the, the actual confrontation in Arthur's Court, just goes completely in a different direction and begins to follow yeah. its own kind of light rather than following the poem. Yeah, I do remember the hairstyles from that movie, and they oh, are god something. awful. They're very eighties. Yeah, but but let me let me go back to what what I think. Uh, one of the one of the things that I like about the the movie, but one of the things that I also think fails. One of the things I like is that it does capture the essence of this questioning of King Arthur's court as a a, a place of hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Um, this all this stuff about uh, bravery and what knighthood is and should be, and then when they're challenged, none of them stand up. Right. And what Arthur's court seems like in this film, and I think in the poem to uh, a somewhat lesser degree, but I think it captures the idea. It 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 is not a good place. It is a place that is very superficial, mm-hmm. and both texts capture that in slightly different ways. Right. I don't think having Gawain be this uh, oversexed, wandering, um, aimless figure, that to me doesn't work. 
Right. It makes uh, no sense. Right. I mean, that's that's yeah. that defines Gowan in the poem. Uh, right. His his commitment to the Virgin Mary, his commitment to purity, that defines him. And of course, that's what makes the confrontations with Lady Bursalac so interesting and so fraught. Right. Is his commitment yeah. to his own purity. Once you, once you introduce yeah, him, yeah, it's just it, it seems ridiculous to me to to cast him as this almost anti-hero, right. uh, Of sorts, right? When I mean, you begin um, it, the poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, with Sir Gawain cavorting in the sh- in the stables with a woman, and then sort of racing through a castle full of half-dressed people, it just it completely yeah. undermines the purpose of the poem. You can tell that yeah. story, but it's a different story. Yeah. At the same time, both texts are about humility, about be- sure. finding humility, yeah. becoming humble. Yeah. Um, and I think the film the film does play with that, but right. not to the degree that the text does. Right. So yeah, to, to wrap this all up, um, I think both of us appreciate the film for what it is to a mm-hmm. large degree. I think both of us find it problematic for reasons that medievalists who have spent a lot of time with the poem would certainly uh, agree with and appreciate. Uh, but we can see it as a separate kind of text right. that plays with some of those ideas. Um, I definitely think it's it's a, a decent medieval film. Um, it's interesting. There's stuff that you can talk about with it. Um, it's just not quite Sir Gawain and the Green Knight either. Right. So right. there's no, that. If you're if you're interested in film as art, it's worth a, it's worth watching it just for that. Just for this is clearly a filmmaker at the top of his game when it comes to creating visual sort of, sort of stories. Um, and it's, it's worth it just for that. So there you go. All right. Uh, so that's got to do it for this episode. Um, yeah. Please let us know what you're thinking about this saga so far. Uh, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? What do you think of Thormod's wild side? Mm. <laughs> and um, if you want to talk to us about that or... Perhaps even um, Falgear's gaping backside. Uh, you sure. can get in touch with us on Twitter at SagaThinkPod or on Facebook and Instagram where we are SagaThinkPodcast. Uh, we also have an email address, SagaThinkPodcast at gmail.com. And we uh, we also have a website, SagaThinkPodcast.wordpress.com, where Neil Armstrong left his comments. Mm-hmm. Um, so check us out there. And if, uh, if none of that works for you, you can you can train a colony of lice to form a message on your cloak. No, we uh, no. We, we really don't want to get that message, but it's no. something to do with your spare time for a while. Oh, that's so much worse than what I thought you were going to do. <laughs> I was sure it was going to have to do with fall gear in some way. I, you know what? Tattooing. I, I, I like to throw you a curveball. You're, no, you, you think I'm going straight I, down the middle? I, I, uh, I like to throw you a curve. John, I hate lice more than I hate almost anything. <laughs> so, so if you do make that message, just send it to Andy. No, 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 no. Um, all right. So anyway, there that is. Uh, send your messages to John. Um, I'll let him with deal with it for now. Um, but we are going to be back soon with the end of False Brother Saga. And we've got a doozy for you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>